It is the Lord's Supper. We invite you back to come and join with us and celebrate that. The early church devoted themselves to that. Um, it was one of the four priorities that they kept, the breaking of bread. And so we believe that as often as we can get together, we should get together. And uh, the first Sunday night of each month, uh, we do that. Uh, actually, this is the first time we've done it on time. I think we've said we'll do it the first Sunday night of each month, but then uh, things have come up and we appreciate your patience. But tonight, actually, miraculously, we're going to meet and have the Lord's Supper. Um, we're still collecting funds to build a church in Baghdad, Iraq. Yes, you heard it right. It's not Baghdad, Iowa. It's Baghdad, Iraq. And uh, we plan to, um, as soon as possible, get under construction and build uh, that fellowship. And what an exciting project to get behind. So if you're interested in helping out, uh, it's, it's just cool uh, to be able to raise funds for that kind of a project. That's, that's right on the edge. Um, the other thing I wanted to announce is we put out this little booklet called Dynamic Discipleship. It's in the bookstore. It's based on 1 Thessalonians, and it's a workbook for discipleship. One of the great needs is discipleship. And so many people ask, how can I be discipled? Well, you could get a group of people and you could meet and go through some of these concepts, all the way from how to share your faith to how to get along with other Christians, uh, how to be a good worker in the workplace, on and on. So it's a practical, hands-on booklet on discipleship if you're interested. Let's now turn to Psalm 59 in our study this morning, the 59th Psalm. Father, we direct our hearts now toward you. The reason we open this book every day is so that you can give us your direction. You can show us the patterns we're to follow. By the examples of men and women who are before us, that you have pleased, been pleased by your Spirit to include in Scripture, I pray, Father, that we would take these examples, learn from them, and our lives would be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things we learn in the book of Psalms is that God's people never relegate him to a -a once-a-week experience. They don't compartmentalize God. They don't put him into categories. Now, some people do that. Some people have certain categories, and they live their lives differently in each category. They say, this is my business And over here is my church life. And then I have my social category. So when I go to church, I'll put on my church style. I'll act like those people so they think I'm one of them. And when I go out into the business world, I play their game and I work their angles. And it's a different set of values, different set of uh, ideals. And when I'm in my social life and doing whatever I want to do, I act that way. We have a a name for such people. They're called hypocrites because they don't live consistently. They live compartmentally. They're not the same all the way around. They're one thing to one group and another thing to another group. And we realize in Scripture that God's people are not like this. They include him in every part of life. They choose to bring him into the workplace, into their social life, into their church life. It's all the same. It's just an extension of their relationship with God. 
And there's no better place to see that than in the book of Psalms. In the book of Psalms, you have virtually all of life's experiences and God included in them. You have meditations, hymns, songs written in in a variety of experiences. For instance, in Psalm 27, it's a song in the midst of a battle. In Psalm 11, it's a man who realizes, man, my society is crumbling. The foundations that were at once at work in my culture are falling. Then in Psalm 32, it's the experience of being forgiven. In Psalm 42, it's a man who's deeply depressed inwardly. And now we come to the 59th Psalm, which is a psalm about oppression. Whereas last week we spoke about depression, this is a psalm for the oppressed. It's not an internal depression. It's an external oppression. It's when people hassle you. It's when people hound you and people attack you. Many of our problems are because there are other people. If we were alone, everything would be, in one sense, great. We'd always get our way. Our values would always prevail. Everyone would see it our way because we'd be the only one. But there are other people who live around us. And because there are other people with other personalities, there are personality clashes. There are disagreements and sometimes, yes, sometimes, even being attacked by those people. And we feel the very same things that the psalmist feels in Psalm 59 whenever we're, say, gossiped about unfairly. Do you know the pain of being misunderstood, misjudged? And they don't know. They wouldn't have said that about me if they only knew. Or if somebody slanders you, that's an attack. Or if a spouse divorces you. Or if somebody drags you and files a lawsuit, drags you into court. You feel the sting of oppression, as the psalmist did here. It is a psalm of David. It says so at the beginning. And it's when David's life takes a a turn for the worse. It's a dark period. And I say period. It's not a week, but a period of about 10 years, we figure, in David's life when he becomes a fugitive. Now talk about oppression. Somebody puts a contract out on his life. There are hired assassins out to kill him. And so he writes this. What do you do at a time like that? Well, what do you do at a time like that? What do you do when you are outwardly oppressed? When trials become more than just trials? When they seem to weigh in, and or maybe there's just so many of them you can't count. It's a mega trial. I was uh, perusing the Internet, and I found an interesting article that I think sort of flies in line with this. It said, not long ago, flocks of migratory birds overwhelmed airport radar systems at Des Moines, Iowa, Omaha, Nebraska, and Kansas City, Missouri. The computerized radar systems were knocked out for hours after they tried to process information on thousands of transient geese. FAA radar systems are supposed to filter out radar echoes that come from birds by tracking their speed, but often controllers will turn off primary radar the one that reads echoes from objects in the sky, and rely upon transponder signals from aircraft. But on that fateful day, the birds appeared so suddenly 
that FAA controllers had no time to act. The birds appeared in such vast numbers that the system's filtering system, which screens out echoes from birds, quickly failed. The Des Moines radar system can process 700 bona fide aircraft returns and 300 non-aircraft returns simultaneously. But that day, the system was overwhelmed with over 900 bird echoes within minutes. There are times in our lives when the background noise is so overwhelming, we lose sight of God and all the static. You're trained to pick up certain signals, but then you get dumped on. When the trials of life become that kind, what do you do? Well, the answer is you get God back on the scope somehow. You get him back online. In a word, you pray. It's what David does. It's been said that prayer is the gymnasium of the soul. If that's true, David is about to have a good workout at the gym in this psalm. But what do you say when somebody's out to kill you? What kind of prayer do you offer God? What words do you include when you are oppressed like that, hassled from the outside? How can you pray at a time like this? That's what the psalm is all about. And it doesn't really begin in verse 1. It begins before that. There is a few words that are given in a, a preamble. The preamble is this. To the chief musician, set to do not destroy. Whatever song that is, that is what you set it to. A michtam, or a meditation of David, when Saul sent men and they watched the house in order to kill him. Now we have a historic setting given to us that we can plug this psalm into. And I think it always helps to get the background of the psalm. So let's turn left. Let's go down the street a bit to 1 Samuel chapter 19. Before we get into the psalm, the prayer itself, let's look at David's situation. 1 Samuel chapter 19. Let's turn there and read it. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan his son, and to all his servants, that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, be, uh, be, therefore please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, And I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. Thus Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his works have been very good towards you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine, that would be Goliath, And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan. And Saul swore, as the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Saul was an interesting dude. When H.G. Wells, the author, wrote about one of his characters in his books, Mr. Polly, 
he described him this way. He said, he's not so much a human being as he is a civil war. Now that is Saul. Saul was a living, breathing, walking civil war, a paradox. He was torn on the inside. He was pulled in different directions. On one hand, at one instance, he could be like a a docile little kitten, tame. And then you'd see him a little while later, and he was like a ferocious lion on the attack. Do you know somebody like that? Maybe you live with somebody like that. Then this, I heard an amen. This psalm is for you. It all started when, uh, when David defeated Goliath. Goliath was like the big gun of the Philistines. Everyone was afraid of him. David took him out. And he rose instantly to national hero status. He was the icon. In fact, a song was written about him. And uh, that's really where the problems began. Because the song was sung by the women of Israel as the men came back from battle. The words were, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. That was one of the stanzas in the song. So imagine the men, including Saul, coming back from uh, the battle. And, and here's the song. It's on the top 40 charts already. Top of the list. Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. When Saul heard that, he put David at the top of his list, the hit list. And in chapter 18, he tries to play pin the tail, pin the spear on the David. He misses David. David flees from his presence. He was out to kill him. But it goes from bad to worse. He thinks of another strategy. How can I kill David? And so he thinks, oh, I'll use my daughter as a pawn. And this is what Saul says about his daughter. He says, I will give her to him that she may be a snare unto him. Gals, how would you like your father to think of you as a snare? I know how to mess up his life. I'll give her my daughter. (laughs) Thanks, Dad. So they get married. But before they get married, Saul demands a dowry, a very interesting dowry. To jeopardize the life of David, he says... If you want to marry my daughter, you have to kill a hundred Philistines and give me the four skins of the Philistines. I'm not going to make much comment on that. I'll just say that that was the dowry that he demanded, probably hoping that David would be killed in such a conflict. He was not. He came back with 200. And now we come to chapter 19, where Saul again says, I'm going to kill David. Jonathan says, Dad, why would you kill David? He rescued Israel. He loves you. You rejoiced in that day. So now he says, okay, I won't kill him. Let's go on, though. Jonathan called David, verse 7, and Jonathan told him all these things. Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times past. And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. You can see now the setup, how this would... In- in fact, make Saul more jealous because David, again, is a hero. Now, the distressing spirit from the Lord came on Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing his music with his hand. Then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with his spear. Try to imagine living with that kind of pressure. 
You probably, none of you, if, if at all, few of you know what it's like to have somebody throw a knife or a spear or try to kill you with a weapon. This has already happened to David. He's in the same room again with Saul as if to say, you know what, let bygones be bygones. I forgive you. You tried to kill me a few times. I made it. And I'll still serve you in this capacity. I'll play my music to soothe your soul. What a beautiful scene. Saul pacing up and down, perhaps. David playing his music. I wonder if Saul didn't even sing part of the Psalms with David. You know what it's like when you're driving in your car, you turn on the radio, you recognize the song, you start singing along with it. It could be that David sung a familiar tune and Saul sang a few bars with him. It was a beautiful scene that turned quickly sour as he grabs his spear, tries to kill him once again. And so it says, again, let's finish in verse 10, but he slipped away from Saul's presence and he drove the spear into the wall so David fled and escaped that night. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him. Now that is where Psalm 59 comes in. That was written right before, when he sent men to watch him to kill him. So he sent messengers to David's house to watch him to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you don't save your life tonight, tomorrow you're toast. Or as it says here, you'll be killed. So Michael let David down through a window and he went and fled and he escaped. Now David has lost his position as soldier, as national hero. Uh, He is now a fugitive. He loses his wife, his home. And for ten years after this, he's hunted by Saul through the caves and the deserts of Israel. Needless to say, this is one of the lowest moments in his life. He's reached bottom. What did he think about? What did he feel like? Well, Psalm 59 tells us exactly what he feels like. Let me say that though this was a hard time for David, understatement, he didn't lose sight of God. In fact, he uses the experience as fuel to pray to God. Some of the most beautiful psalms written by David were written during this period of exile when he fled from Saul. Let me go on to say that some of the world's best music was written when people go through the uh, toughest times uh, of most anguish. Charles Spurgeon said, The music of the sanctuary is in no small degree indebted to the trials of the saints. Affliction is the tuner of the harps of sanctified songsters. That's what Psalm 59 is. During this time, it is written. Let's go back and read it now. The 59th Psalm, written during this time. As we go through Psalm 59, I'd like you to notice five qualities of David's prayer life, and I hope they will become qualities in your own prayer life if you're gossiped or slandered or hassled or sued or whatever. First of all, it was specific. He begins by saying, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Defend me from those who rise up against me. Deliver me from the workers of iniquity. And save me from bloodthirsty men. I think that we read Psalms sometime and we figure, oh, they're quaint little poems with lofty little thoughts. No way. There is a sense of desperation and urgency in his prayer, and he's very, very specific. And notice the four imperatives that begin the four swift stanzas of verse 1 and 2. 
He says, deliver me, defend me, deliver me, save me. Now that is definite. That's to the point. He doesn't fill in lots of verbiage, lots of words. It's just, God, help now. That's the idea. He was specific. And then in verse 3, notice he describes specifically the problem. Look, he says to God, they lie in wait for me. They gather against me. David in his prayer is then very, very specific with what he's asking. Now, why should we be specific when we pray? Is it because God needs the information? Is it because God doesn't know what's going on and you fill him in so he knows? Don't get the idea that God is going, really? Now, I'm glad you told me because otherwise I wouldn't have known. No, that's not the idea. But the more specific the prayer, the more specific the outcome. You can say, man, I prayed exactly for that. That was God. When you're vague, you never know. Example. Howard Hendricks tells a cool story about a family that fell on hard times in Dallas, Texas. He knew them. The man quit his job, got another job with less money, hard to make ends meet, and they had four boys. Timmy was the youngest. One evening for prayer time, Timmy came and he said, Daddy, do you think Jesus would mind if I prayed for a new shirt? He said, of course not. Let's write that down. They kept a little prayer journal as a family. And so Father wrote down, shirt for Timmy, and added, size 7. Now that's specific. Shirt for Timmy, size 7. Well, every night they gathered, and sure enough, Timmy said, let's pray for my shirt. Weeks went on, and they prayed for that shirt. One Saturday morning, they got a phone call. It was from a Christian businessman, a clothier in downtown Dallas. You can guess the scenario. He said to the mother, I just finished my July clearance, and I remembered you had four boys. Could you use any shirts? She said, what size? Seven. How many you got? He said, 12. So she took the shirts, brought them home that night. Sure enough, Timmy on cue said, let's pray for my shirt. Dad said, don't have to pray for your shirt, Timmy. God answered it. Mom went in the next room, took one shirt, wrapped in that new wrapping and set it on the table and his eyes get as big as saucers. And then, just for dramatics, she goes in and gets the second shirt, sticks it on the first shirt. Goes in, gets the third shirt, puts it on the second shirt. Does that with all 12. Now, by this time, Timmy thinks God's going into the shirt business. (laughs) But the point is, there's a little boy in Dallas, Texas, who believes there's a God in heaven interested enough to provide little boys with shirts. Size 7. I think so often we are vague in our prayers. Too vague. Lord, just bless all the spoken and unspoken prayer requests. Bless the world. What good is that? What is that? What if you walked into a restaurant with that attitude? I have a general food need. Bless me. Here's a menu. Would you be specific? There's good advice for preachers that someone once gave. He said, never preach to be understood Preach so it's impossible to be misunderstood. Good advice for praying. Pray specifically. Instead of saying, Lord, 
meet the financial need, say he needs 250 bucks. Pray specifically for it. Uh, instead of, Lord bless Harriet, well, how? Does she need a friend? Does she need a car? And you say, Lord, just bless China. What message is that? How about there are missionaries in Beijing this week smuggling Bibles in, protect them and give them wisdom as they distribute the literature. That's specific. But Lord, just now we pray for the unspoken prayer. What is that? Be specific. Those kind of prayers bounce off the ceiling. David was specific. Secondly, he was honest. Now, you're about to read some things that are very, very honest. In fact, you may want to just hold on to your pews because these are the words of honest people in times of desperation. I want to just say it's a good thing God doesn't always say yes to our prayers. This is recorded faithfully. It might not be the will of God at this time, but it certainly is the heart of David. Uh, You're going to notice that David does not say bless, lead, guide, and direct, but it's more gut level than that. Verse 5. You, therefore, O Lord God of hosts, the God of Israel, awake to punish all the nations. Uh, Wait a minute, David. Uh, All the nations? Saul is one guy. Do not be merciful to any of the wicked transgressors. Then he says, Selah, or think about it. Stew on it. Um, He says concerning them, At evening they return, they growl like a dog, they go all around the city, indeed they belch with their mouth. Swords are in their lips, for they say, who hears? In other words, God, blow them out of the water, they're a bunch of burping dogs. (laughs) Now, it gets better, or worse, depending on your perspective. Look down in verse 11. Do not slay them, lest my people forget, scatter them by your power. Bring them down, O Lord, our shield, for the sin of their mouth and the words of their lips. Let them be, let them even be taken in their pride and for the cursing and lying of which they speak. Consume them in wrath, consume them that they may not be. And let them know that God rules in Jacob to the ends of the earth. In one of the other Psalms, David even says, God, break their teeth in their mouth. That's honest praying. Let me give to you verse 11 and a couple of these other phrases that we just read. In another translation, a modern translation written by a scholar who uh, is called Eugene Peterson, he wrote the translation called The Message. It says here, Do not make a quick work of them, Yahweh, lest my people forget. Bring them down in slow motion. Take them apart piece by piece. Finish them off in fine style. Finish them off for good. Now, uh, that sounds like something the mafia would pray. God, make them an offer they can't refuse. This is David. It is amazing what you find in Scripture. And remember, this becomes a worship song for the nation of Israel. Lesson number one, I guess, would be don't hassle people who walk with God. You might incur this kind of prayer. Not that God will say yes to it. Lesson number two for those of us who pray, be open and be honest with God. He can handle it. He's unshockable. If you think something or say something, he didn't go, I 
can't believe you think that. He knows you think that. Don't hide it from him. I'm not saying be irreverent to God. Be holy and reverent with God. But be honest about how you feel about the situation. Until you're honest, how can you be dealt with? David was open. Spurgeon said, There's no secret of my heart that I will not pour into the ear of God. Let me go on to say, speaking about honesty in prayer, that our prayers don't impress God. God isn't impressed by language, vocabulary, tone. He doesn't stop and go, Wow, now that's a prayer. In fact, Billy Graham, I can't listen to you right now. This guy's praying. This is at a whole nother level. He's not impressed by flowery language. In fact, we can cover up our true feelings or our true lives, and prayer can be a smokescreen for disobedience. Example. This is a prayer of a girl on her wedding day. And she says, Dear God, I can hardly believe this is my wedding day. I know that I haven't been able to spend much time with you lately. And with all the rush of getting ready for today, I'm sorry. I guess, too, I feel a little guilty when I try to pray about all this since Larry still isn't a Christian. But, oh, Father, I love him so much. What else can I do? I just couldn't give him up. Oh, you must save him some way, somehow. You know how much I've prayed for him and the way we've discussed the gospel together. I've tried not to appear too religious, I know, but that's because I didn't want to scare him off. Yet he is an antagonistic, and I can't understand why he hasn't responded. Oh, if only he were a Christian, dear Father, please bless our marriage. I don't want to disobey you, but I do love him, and I want to be his wife. So please be with us, and please don't spoil my wedding day. If that prayer was stripped of all its pious language, it would sound more like this. God, I don't want to disobey you, but I must have my own way at all costs. For I love what you do not love, and I want what you do not want. So please be a good God and deny yourself and move off your throne and let me take over. And if you don't like all this, then I ask that you just bite your tongue and say, And do nothing that will spoil my plans, but please let me enjoy myself. All of that flowery prayer was just a cover-up for a disobedient lifestyle. Oh, it sounded so sweet. Listen, be honest with yourself. And then be honest with God in prayer. So David was specific. He was honest. Another thing to notice about his prayer, I draw your attention to verse 3. It was a prayer that was appraised. That is, he, he made an evaluation of himself in view of the attack. For look, they lie in wait for my life. The mighty gather against me, notice, not for my transgression or for my sin, O Lord. They run and prepare themselves through no fault of mine. In other words, as I look at Saul's attack on my life, as I look at what I've done and not done, I realize that this is not because I've sinned. I'm not incurring some divine judgment or wrath because I've done something wrong. I haven't done anything wrong. This is not arrogance. He's not saying I'm sinless before God. Simply, before my oppressors, I'm sinless. I didn't do anything to them. I did everything right. And yet this has happened. If you are 
innocent. That is, if you have been walking in the will of God, earnestly trying to do His will, then you can pray with great confidence. If not, your confidence is sketchy. Listen to what John says, 1 John chapter 3. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, then we have confidence toward God, and whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. So learn to appraise your attacks. Somebody attacks you, oppresses you, says something about you. Ask yourselves, all right, where is this coming from? Is this from a close friend who loves me and has my best interest at heart? Is this from a jealous person, a jealous neighbor, relative? Are they trying to tear me down? Are they trying to build me up? Is it my fault? Did I invite it? Is this fair? Now, to be objective, you may want to ask somebody who does know you and love you well and ask them the same thing. Say, you know what? I've been accused of this. Do you see this in my life? Now, they may say, as a matter of fact, I do. Well, then you receive the criticism. They say, no, that's not you at all. And I'm being very honest with you about it. Then don't worry about it. Forget it. Drop it. Don't receive it. A woman came to Dwight L. Moody. Dwight L. Moody was that Chicago evangelist. And after one of his messages, she said, Sir, uh, I am an English teacher, and I'm appalled at your use of the English language. You have butchered it, she said. I'm appalled at all your grammatical errors, and I would think that somebody speaking to this large of an audience would want to take care of those grammatical errors before he even speaks. Well, Moody certainly did ruin the Queen's English, or King's English, hung his head and then said, Well, ma'am, I'm doing the very best for Jesus with what I have. And then he paused a minute and looked at her intently and said, Tell me, are you doing the best for Jesus with what you have? Perfect answer to somebody who didn't want to build up but to tear down. He took it, and then he left it. It was an appraised prayer. Fourthly, it was a prayer with confidence. Um, One of the striking features about this psalm is how many uses of the names of God David employs. He didn't just say, oh God, oh God, but he kind of piles up the names. In verse 1, my God. In verse 3, oh Lord. Verse 5, Lord God of hosts and God of Israel. Verse 10, God of mercy. Verse 11, O Lord, our shield. Verse 17, O you, my strength. So he's desperate, but he's using all of the names of God that would elevate a certain confidence. Then we get to verse 8. And I want you to notice the first word. He starts the sentence with a negative contraction. But you, O Lord, shall laugh at them. You shall have the nations in derision. Now, my English teacher said never begin a sentence with but. David did. And I think it's because he's praying, he's crying out, and it's like his prayer takes a certain turn of confidence. It's like he's saying, you know what? I'm in need. They're attacking me. It's not my fault. But wait a minute. God will laugh at them. God's in heaven. He'll have them in derision. If there's one emotion you don't want to have, for God to have towards you, it's this. You never want to be able to say, God's laughing at me. This isn't the kind of laughter like God slapping his knee going, good joke. 
This is a laughter of confidence in light of wicked man saying, I'm going to get my way. Yeah, right. He's not moved by it. He's not shaken by man's little taunts or Saul's threats. You might say, well, it's kind of cruel. David's the one suffering and God's up there laughing. But what David realizes is God is still in control, on the throne, sovereign. They're attacking, but wait a minute, God's in charge. That's the idea here. It's as if he has a sudden realization. They're fighting God. It looks like an attack against me, but they're fighting him. If I'm in the plan of God, if I've been anointed as the king of Israel eventually, they're fighting God. Have you ever watched God do battle? It's interesting to watch. He can, he can do battle like no one else I know. An example that brought this home was when I was in the Philippines visiting a group of pastors for a conference. And they uh, asked about how I got there. I said, oh, I got here on the bus. And they said, oh, you know, that bus, same bus route was blown up last week. group of Americans were killed. And I'm thinking, oh, thanks a lot. And I'm getting a little nervous. And to calm me down, they said, well, you know, let me tell you a story. We had a group of terrorists come into our church a few weeks ago. They were the NPA, the New People's Army, communist guerrillas at the time. They came into the church during the service, disrupted us, held machine guns to different people in the congregation and to me, and said, we'll be back next week. We want the offering. We want what you have at home, your belongings, your wealth. If not, we're going to destroy you. We know where you live. It's a small town. So they wonder, should we even meet next week? They did. I'm sure it was an interesting church service. Nobody came. Nobody came to the evening service. They found out a few days later, en route, the guerrillas who were coming, their jeeps collided, overturned, and they were killed on the way. Now that's doing battle. And David realizes, but God in heaven shall laugh at them. He shall hold them in derision. This is a battle that I can bring God into this. I think it's neat when the enemy surrounds you to be able to say, you better watch it or I'm going to tell God on you. Confidence exudes from these verses. Verse 9, I will wait for you, O you, his strength, for God is my defense. That's confidence. When I was a kid, I remember somebody saying, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. And I grew up for the longest time thinking it was in the Bible, till I read the Bible in about every conceivable version. It's not in there. Ben Franklin said that, not the Bible. The Bible would indicate God helps the helpless who put their confidence in Him, not in themselves. There was a a woman, a Christian woman, who was bedridden. Her pastor said, you want to be blessed, you visit this woman. She is the happiest woman I know. Well, a friend of hers went to visit her one day, brought with her a wealthy woman who didn't know the gal but heard about her, just to cheer her up. She lived in a broken-down apartment building in the fifth floor of the attic apartment. And they walked into the front of this building and... um, It was pretty bad. There was no elevator, so you had to walk up the stairs. They walk up to the first level, first floor, and uh, the well-to-do woman looks around and says, Man, this is a filthy place. Her friend says, It's better higher up. 
So they walk up to the second floor and she looks around and says, this is worse than the first floor. And her friend again said, it's better higher up. They get to the fifth floor, walk into the infirmed woman's apartment. There she is in bed and her smile filled the room. It was a very meager room, clean, flowers on the windowsill, but very, very sparse. And the well-to-do woman very awkwardly looked at her and said, it must be so hard for you being here like this. The woman in bed said, it's better higher up. She wasn't living there. Oh, she was there in bed. But she had such a confidence in God that she was living higher up. David is living higher up, still surrounded, filled with confidence. Which brings me to the last point. This prayer was progressive. In verse 14, it says, At evening they, that is the enemies, the oppressors, return. They growl like a dog. They go all around the city. They wander up and down for food and howl if they are not satisfied. But I will sing of your power. Yes, I will sing aloud of your mercy in the morning, for you have been my defense, my refuge in the day of my trouble. To you, O my strength, I will sing praises For God is my defense, my God of mercy. Now, have you noticed there's a definite progression in this psalm? It begins with panic. It ends with praise. It doesn't end how it started. If you notice verse 14 and 15, it sounds a lot like verse 6. He's describing the enemies. They're like dogs. They howl. They go around the city. He says it again, but he says, I will sing. Here's my point. There has not been a change in David's circumstances from the first word of this psalm to the last. The enemies are still there. They're still barking. They're still belching outside trying to get at him. What has changed is David. There hasn't been a change in the circumstances. There's been a change in David's life. You've ever heard the axiom, prayer changes things? Let me rework that. Prayer changes you changes us. If you pray right, it changes the way you think. The prayer itself, as you unload everything on God, changes you. And we see it has changed David. Why? There's a couple verses I want you to compare. Compare verse 9 and verse 17. Verse 9, I will wait for you, O you his strength. He's making it kind of third person. Verse 17, to you, O my strength, I will sing praises. In one sentence, he says, I'll wait for you. In the last sentence, he says, I'll sing to you. They're very similar. In fact, in Hebrew, the word wait and sing, if you looked at them, are identical, except for one letter difference. Just one stroke of the pen changes the whole meaning of the word. You might say then that when you're going through that kind of trial and your eyes are fixed on God and you're waiting and looking to Him, you're just one stroke away from singing to Him. Have you lacked joy? Maybe you're not waiting, looking, anticipating. And that's how David ends. Have you noticed when we pray that we seldom pray for a change of character? And we almost always pray for a change of circumstance. God, get me out of this. Deliver me. Rather than changing for or or praying for a change of us, character inside. The psalm could have ended with verse 15. 
But it doesn't. Three times he says, I'll sing, I'll sing, I'll sing. You know what that reminds me of? Paul and Silas. Remember Paul and Silas? Uh, Talk about, from going from bad to worse, they are uh, in Philippi and sort of start a riot. They're arrested. They're stripped. They're beaten. They're put in jail. What would you do? What'd they do? Acts 16. At midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. They're not sulking. They're singing. They're not cursing men. They're praising God. That's how David ends. Anybody can sing when it's happy, when the cupboards are full, when life's good. Let's sing. But what about when you're oppressed? Once again, Charles Spurgeon, I've quoted him a lot. He's become, let's call him Chuck Spurgeon now. He's our friend. He said, any fool can sing in the day. It's easy to sing when we can read the notes by daylight. But the skillful singer is he who can sing when there's not a ray of light to read by. Songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of men. What a change then. He begins being specific, help, deliver, save. He goes on and he's very, very honest with God. He appraises his situation. And then there's a change. He starts becoming more confident in God as he realizes this is God's battle. And he ends by singing praises to God. New York City Church downtown bought a new organ. And uh, on its debut performance day, the church was filled with members and visitors. Couldn't get a seat. Time came for the first notes to be struck. The organist got his hands ready for the chord, pushed down. No sound. Tried what he could. No sound. The custodian sort of panicked, realized what's going on is the electricity probably isn't on. So he scribbles a note to the organist to say, after the invocation, I'll plug it in. But he has to write a quick note. And so it said, after the prayer, the power will be on. And I'd put that saying right here in David's life. Here's a guy with a death threat against him. After the prayer, the power is on. Let prayer change you. You say, well, I don't pray very much. Only people who realize they need it do. And if you haven't been, then there's a fundamentally deeper problem. Maybe you haven't realized your need. Maybe this is a good time to do that. Father, we come and we recognize we need you every hour as we just sung. Lord, I I pray that we would learn through this example at times like this how to talk to you. You're not impressed by our language. You are impressed by a right heart. I pray that we would be honest and specific and we would evaluate our situation in the light of good counsel. I pray, Lord, that our prayers would not be filled with defeat but confidence because, after all, you are God and we belong to you. And if they're attacking us, they're attacking your property. Lord, I pray that the end would be different from the beginnings of our talks with you. 
We close by singing your praises. Lord David's situation is not unlike many of ours. Now help us. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen.